0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Sarah Longwell. Sarah is a Republican strategist, the president and CEO of Longwell Partners, a consulting firm, and publisher of The Bulwark. She leads Republicans for the Rule of Law, which advocated for the impeachment and removal of President Trump in 2019, which feels like about 100,000 years ago. Welcome, Sarah, and thank you for Passing Judgment with us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right into, I live in a bit of a bubble, I'm going to be honest. I'm a law professor in West LA. A lot of people I know are left of center. And I feel like I have a good sense of what they think is the difference between a conservative ideology and a liberal ideology. But perhaps from the other side of the aisle, can you define for us, what does it mean to be a political conservative?
1: Yeah, well, I'm answering this from real America, uh, which is Washington, D.C. So, uh, man, I need a laugh track for these things. Uh, (laughs) That was the
0: best. I was like, oh, my God, that was hilarious. And by the way, we're keeping that in the podcast.
1: (laughs) Uh, Look, for me, the reason that
0: I became a conservative was
1: that I liked the idea of government not being intrusive in people's lives. I like the idea of personal responsibility. I believe in American leadership in the world. You know, I just was always attracted to the, almost the like, the, it, this might sound weird, but there is like almost a romantic version of conservatism, which is that kind of, and this is especially when I was younger, that kind of, you know, can do up by the bootstraps mentality. Uh All of the things that sort of (laughs) fall away as you get older and realize uh, how complicated life is. But I would say that that's what attracted me from the start. But I will tell you, like, as an adult, um, I think some of it is just that temperamentally, when something comes up and let's take the idea of, you know, right now, that's a big topic of conversation is like, what are we going to do about the Internet and a lot of these platforms? Right. And so you get folks on the left who they immediately jump to the idea of like, well, we should regulate it. and that is not where I jump. You know, when I, when I think about what the solution to a problem might be, government and regulation is almost never the solution that I would come up with, or it's just not where I would turn first. Um, But, you know, it's getting harder and harder. You know, I have to sort of talk about conservatism in my own way, because it's getting harder and harder to define in any way that is, I think, you know consistent with what people might see out of the Republican party the idea of kind of the three-legged stool that mitt romney would talk about the kind of underpinned conservatism you know free markets there was the religious component that was never really my bag and then you know american leadership abroad those were kind of the things that that held conservatism together and of course Much of that is not part of the modern Trump Republican Party. And so it gets harder and harder to answer that question
0: uh, for, for anybody. There's something to me in some instances that's appealing about the government doesn't belong in every aspect of our life. But then doesn't that also include my doctor's office and doesn't it also include my church or mosque or temple?
1: Yeah, but I think, you know, there's a difference between sort of the ordered liberty that conservatives talk about and like a pure libertarian uh, kind of, hey, there's no regulation whatsoever, uh, which is kind of a different uh, a different phenomenon Um, because and conservatives talk about ordered liberty a lot because it is not the opportunity for just everybody to do absolutely what they want. And John Stuart Mill, who's one of the fathers of conservatism, talked about, you know, you are free to do what you want until it infringes on somebody else's liberty. And so that automatically puts in lots of constraints, right? You're just not allowed to blow all the red lights because you might hurt somebody else. And so um, the conservatism, as I sort of came up in it, was not this idea of just like rank libertarianism. There are no rules. There are no regulations.
0: Right. Are there situations where you think... You know what? Sometimes government is the solution. Sometimes private individuals, private organizations, private corporations can't stand in and fill this need. Are there specific areas where you think people should, on the conservative side, maybe look to and say, yes, the government does belong there?
1: Well, there's all kinds of places that I think um, the government does belong, and a lot of them are written in the Constitution. So the idea of, you know having a, a military, um, you know, not having private militias. Um, and, uh, look, I think there's, there's a difference between having an intellectual argument about government, uh, like as a, as a good or bad force versus like living in the real world, which yeah. I do I'm kind of a pragmatic Republican and being like, when is government becoming more of a hindrance and when is it more of a help. And I think that, you know, there's, it's not like, um, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not walking in somewhere and being like, we should get the government, you know, entirely out of healthcare. Uh, Like, there is a a role for government to play, but that's a different conversation than should the government be the only institution running healthcare?
0: Well, I noticed that you mentioned the constitution, which does make, it's such a quaint concept, isn't it? And Sarah, it does make me feel like you're more of our grandfather's Republican in the sense that I wanted to have this conversation with you up front partly because I feel like we don't get to talk like this anymore. I don't, we don't get to say, if you're a conservative, what makes you a conservative? If you're you're a liberal, what makes you a liberal? And that really brings us to, as always, the elephant in the room, which is, uh, president Trump. And, um, I think partly we can't have these conversations because, everything becomes kind of a proxy for, do you support the president or do you not? And the first question really is, is President Trump a Republican in your view? Is he a conservative politician?
1: No, not even close, not remotely. Um, Donald Trump uh, is bereft ideologically. I mean, he doesn't really have like a, a core center or like he has a, he has like a collection of hobby horse things that matter to him, like trade and China. And the Republican Party has become so institutionally weak, um, especially when it comes to having things that it stands affirmatively for, um, that it was just sort of ripe for somebody like him to come along and take the whole thing over. And that's what's happened.
0: So how did it become institutionally weak?
1: You know, I think that uh, you can see it kind of manifest in there's a Tea Party wing and of the party that kind of rose up during the Obama administration. And then there was kind of, I guess what you'd call an establishment wing that I guess would be represented by people like Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan, um, John Boehner, and the sort of Populist strain that I would say you could even go back to somebody like Sarah Palin or further back to somebody like Pat Buchanan, the populist strain that had always been sort of dormant in the party but very much real. Uh, it was kind of like a recessive gene that became dominant. Uh, but but I think that there was this there was this institutional there was a struggle going on between kind of the Freedom Caucus. Folks who were like, you can never spend money on anything, and they were basically obstructionist and obstinate when it came to President Obama, and they were running on things that were always oppositional, right? So you have people like Paul Ryan who was like, hey, the, the, the wage gap matters, People see mm-hmm. you know, we got to figure out here. Here are my ideas for how we raise people's standards of living. And here are some of the things we're going to do. You know, climate change is real and we need some free market solutions to figure out how to address it. And here, you know, Mitt Romney, you know, people forget that Obamacare was sort of modeled off of Romney care in Massachusetts. You know, Mitt Romney was a guy who was like, hey, here's here. Are, here are ideas How we do things, and it's funny because as a younger person, I sort of saw the Republican Party as the party of ideas, Um, but but it was quickly kind of just having this brain drain where uh, there was this faction that got noisier and noisier during the Obama years that was that had and and nowhere is this idea more present than the concept of repeal and replace, right? So Mm -hmm. so for a decade now. The Republicans have said they were going to repeal Obamacare and they're going to replace it with a, with a better health care plan. Well, people talk about Trump not producing that health care plan, but the fact is Republicans have had a really long time to produce it. This, 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 this predates Trump. But nobody was out there saying, here's how we're going to address climate change. Here's how we're going to address health care. Here are affirmative ideas. Instead, they just became the party of no. No, we're not going to do what Obama wants. And no, we don't have any idea about how to fix it ourselves. And I think that that kind of just oppositional, like only being oppositional and not having things that it stood for affirmatively, allowed it to just, you know, it made it right for somebody to come in and sort of fill that void. Um, And Trump did it, again, not with ideas, but just with a personality.
0: So... That's a great explanation of how you create basically fertile ground for President Trump to become what seems to me to be uh, unquestionably the leader of the Republican Party. But there are still some, I mean, there is, Mitt Romney is still in the Senate. So you and I have talked about this a little bit before offline, but how does President Trump get establishment Republicans to stay with him? I mean, is it that... Look at what you know, look at what he's done to the judiciary. He's completely remade the federal judiciary, he's cut taxes, and that's enough. Or at a certain point, don't Republicans in power say, enough. This is not right. We care about the rule of law, and we care about this is an existential threat to our country. Maybe it's a very naive question, but I can never wrap my head around the idea that people like Mitch McConnell never say, okay done where i'd rather have joe biden than have this yeah i mean that
1: makes two of us look uh when when donald trump shocked the country and me uh in 2016 you know all my friends were calling me up because i'm the only republican they know and they're saying hey uh what is gonna happen like what what are we gonna do this is terrible The country's about to end and i said guys i look don't overreact this is gonna be okay Uh, We have checks and balances in this country. Our institutions are strong and the Republican Party is filled with responsible people who will act as guardrails against this president. Uh, And it's the thing I have been the most wrong about. Um, I have been shocked at the extent to which Republicans have stood down in the face of whether it's corruption, norm-breaking, uh, cozying up to dictators. I mean, just one objectionable thing after the other. But there's a reason, and the reason is not. Uh, people sort of think it's just in, in sort of a, a transactional relationship for judges and tax cuts, and there's some of that. But that's not really what it was. Um, I, I think at the root of it, look, these, these politicians, um, they are afraid of the voters. And Donald Trump really did, when he hijacked the party, People sometimes think of it about like hijacking the agenda and things like that, but that's not it. What he did was he captured the voters and he accelerated a political realignment. Um, that in some ways was occurring slowly, but but he really pushed it, which was that a lot of these blue collar democrats in a bunch of these midwestern states and elsewhere, uh, you know, they had been sort of union households and um, but now they were. They were upset and uh, they were economically strained and they lived in places where that used to be vibrant, that no longer were, and they were angry. And he was able to capture a lot of them. Those those white working class voters you hear so much about in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, which is where he pulled off his 77,000 vote, you know, victory.
0: I love this explanation that he's hijacked the party by capturing the voters and that the establishment is concerned about the voters But it does seem to me that President Trump has a floor and a ceiling, and it's pretty narrow in the sense of support. And there have to be other Republicans like you who feel that they've essentially lost their home at this point. And I'm wondering how much you think, well, I guess the polls indicate that the Republican voters really are with President Trump. So you know, is this the new Republican Party? How do you go forward? Do you essentially abolish the party and create a new party? You know, how can you solve this, you said, institutional weakness?
1: Yeah, well, there's a couple of things in here. One is that Donald Trump does, it appears, have a ceiling. Now, that theory is going to be tested in earnest on Tuesday. Um, but if if Donald Trump loses, and I don't just mean loses like he wins Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin by a decisive but not big margin. I mean he like I mean like the country rears up and you see this early voting and while we can't read too much into it it's a metric of enthusiasm. The the country rears up and just repudiates Trump and Trumpism. Um and he is a one-term president who looks like an aberration and he there's just a thorough repudiation well, then there's an opportunity to start talking about, hey, guys, that didn't work. That nationalist populist thing was bad. Uh, if Now, if he just wins, if, if, or if Donald Trump just loses uh, by a little bit, then people probably think, well, you know, that was that was COVID and um, and he got some bad luck. And so, you know, let's try this national populist thing, but let's do it a little bit better. Let's just put Tom Cotton's face on it. Um, and. I think if they continue to go down that road, um, look, you can't build a long-term governing coalition on just white working class voters. Um, That being said, it's a fight worth having because it is important for there to be this center-right party in the country.
0: Well, this has already been uh, deeply terrifying, so let's keep going and make it even scarier perhaps. Which is um, you represent? I think a wing of the Republican Party that says not Trump, not now, not ever. How many people do you think share your sensibility? And I'm I'm getting at a question, which is, uh, come election day, how many people who are registered R's are going to you think be comfortable, maybe for the first time in their lives, voting for someone with a D next to their name, uh, Vice President Joe Biden?
1: Yeah. So the political realignment I talked about in terms of sort of white working class voters who used to be Democrats, uh, who are now sort of culturally more Trumpy Republicans, there's a similar realignment happening among suburban and college educated voters, um, where a lot of people who voted for John McCain and Mitt Romney are going to show up on Tuesday and they're going to vote for Joe Biden. and. And feel just more comfortable with the Democrats. I mean, even I do these focus groups all the time with Trump voters. And one of the things I'm always surprised to hear from them um, is I sort of ask them what policies are important to them. And they'll say things like the environment uh, or, um, you know, doing something about school shootings. Um, and they just they don't sound like people who might stick with the Republican Party for a, a, a lot longer uh, and and yeah, and I think there's going to be, look, I think there's going to be, I believe that what's going to happen on Tuesday is that there will be a thorough repudiation of Trump. And that is going to mean that a significant number of lifelong Republicans or right-leaning independents, independents voted for Joe Biden. And I think that's going to happen.
0: Let's exchange numbers at the end of this so we can text each other throughout election night. And I really hope that my text to you will be, you were so right. And I've never hoped that my election law background is less useful. You just talked about your focus groups and I have two questions coming, thinking about that. One is who is the undecided voter now? Is it somebody who doesn't know if they want to show up or not? Because it seems to me that these are two men that we know an enormous amount about and are hugely different in terms of style, in terms of substance, in terms of character in every way. So Who are these undecided voters? I think a lot
1: of the reason that people are undecided right now, it is people who do not like Donald Trump, who do not think that they can vote for him again and are trying to figure out if they can affirmatively vote for Joe Biden or if they should vote third party or if they should write in their grandmother. And I think that that but it's a real problem, I think, for Trump in the sense that there were a lot of undecideds. At the end in 2016, and they broke for Trump in a pretty big way, but this time around, uh, all of the people who went third party in 2016, they're breaking for Biden, and the people this time who were undecided, they're really uh, they're the ones who are undecided between a third party vote for a Joe Biden vote. So everything is shifting away from Trump.
0: So Sarah, I'm kind of uncurling from my fetal position, but right before we started taping, you said you're in fetal position. What you're saying sounds optimistic to me, and not just based on a sense, but based on your very educated view and your discussions with uh, real voters and these focus groups. So Give me some reason for your anxiety, which, of course, it's not known. There's no guarantees, but it sounds like you're pretty optimistic about what's going to happen on Tuesday and beyond.
1: I am optimistic, um, and I say that with uh, mostly true confidence. Um, <laughs> look, 2016 like did a number on us, and I've got the same PTSD that everybody else does. I am from Pennsylvania, and I have a lot of fears about that state. Um, and I know that, look, I think a lot of things have been fixed. I don't think the polling is going to be as off as it was in 16. But I do wonder in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where there are just a lot of these white working class voters um, who typically don't vote and voted for the first time in 2016, like the question is, is like, is there some pocket of, of those that where there's just more that can turn out from Trump? I don't really think there is. I think that the concept of a shy Trump voter is totally overplayed and that there's much more likely to be a phenomenon of shy Biden voters. Last night when I was talking to these women, uh, you know, I said, are you going to tell anybody you're voting for Biden? They were all like, heck no. Like, that does not play in central Pennsylvania. But it has been sort of it's been sort of a bummer to see how little interest There is in sort of like the rule of law or democracy among kind of rank and file voters. Like the idea that Donald Trump is shredding democracy or like, you know, is against the rule of law is just like not something that plays Um, or it's certainly not something that rises to a level of urgency with people. And so the reason that I think he's going to lose is because there's a pandemic that people are experiencing personal consequences from. He's ignoring it. He's pretending it's not happening. There's an attending economic crisis. You know, we have uh, over 8% unemployment right now. And there's been a racial crisis where people want the bare minimum lip service where somebody, a president, tries to unite the country during those times. And they all recognize that he's been horrible and divisive and kind of poured gasoline on that fire. And that's what's hurting him.
0: So, I hear you saying that you don't think that this erosion of the rule of law really motivates voters. Is that because it feels kind of abstract to a lot of people? Whereas the pandemic, if I'm home, if I see people uh, in my family who have decreased income or losing their job, that that's a direct impact on my life. But just this kind of more amorphous, oh, it feels like the attorney general has suddenly become the president's personal attorney. Does that not really motivate voters? It just
1: doesn't. And I wish that it did. And I think that there's a deeper conversation to be had around why did Trump happen? And a lot of it does have to do with the idea that, like, America could use a much deeper sort of civic understanding and a bit of a civic refresher on just, like, why we should care about certain institutions. Like, why do these things matter? I I mean, I could go on about all of the things that I see kind of poisoning the electorate but one of them is just that like it's not just that they have bad information that's true to some degree but it's also they don't have that much information in general you know like they get their news off the like the social media feed that they look at on their phone um and i think you know it's one thing when things are all going going really well and you don't need every citizen to be super vigilant but like at a time when you feel like democracy is kind of hanging in the balance, uh, to, to see that people aren't really motivated by that, uh, can be hard.
0: Yeah. I'm back in fetal position. Thank you for that. Um, and you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, people reading on social media, reading articles that essentially are in their silo and they're just reinforcing what they think and, or providing disinformation. They're just blatant lies. Are there ways in your work with the focus groups, are there ways where you think you can reach people and say, look, you really can't trust that. That's just not true. And let me show you what the indicia of reliability is. And this isn't it, which is a way of asking, because it's something I struggle with a lot. How do you explain to people, you might not agree with me on X, Y, Z, but what you're saying is just a blatant lie?
1: Yeah. You know, if I could solve this problem, I would solve like a great many of our cultural ills. And so I'm not sure that I've got a silver bullet for it. I will say, you know, the project that we built uh, to help defeat Trump is called Republican Voters Against Trump. And um, I built it after doing all these focus groups and sort of seeing that just how little faith people had in whether it was online advertising or commercials or in elites or the Democrats, like nobody trusted anything. And the one thing that people would engage with and that they would take seriously had much more to do with who the messenger was as opposed to the message. And so, and, and who they tend to trust is people like them. So like people, when you ask like people like, who do you have the most faith in? It's like people like me. Um, And so The project that we built was we went and talked to all of these disaffected Republicans who had hooked up with us through Republicans for the Rule of Law and the other work that I was doing, and we got them to make testimonial videos. We said, hey, just tell us why you're not going to vote for Trump in 2020 as a lifelong Republican. And we got hundreds and then over a thousand people to do it, and they you know, are some of the most, you know, there's a lot of testing platforms that can test the persuasiveness of these videos. And ours have tested among the best this cycle for persuasion, like at the very, very top. And the reason is, is that, uh, you know, the videos that go viral on Twitter that have scary voiceovers and are trying to hit people with lots of facts or whatever, like that does not move people. It does not have an effect on people who, the people who need to be persuading, but a regular person saying, Hey, I'm just like you, I'm in your tribe. And let me tell you, this guy lies all the time and it's bad for us. That, that people react to. That they can understand.
0: That's so, so interesting in terms of what people are going to listen to, what works. I worry so much about us being in information silos. I worry so much about these campaigns of disinformation. And the technology is so far out ahead of the law. And I think you might be the first to say, and maybe the government isn't the final answer um, when it comes to how to regulate or whether or not to regulate. But it is obviously an area of concern. I want to pivot to um, tapping into your expertise and winding down with what would be your advice to Joe Biden in the very home stretch of this election? About 60 million people have already voted. So obviously it's not before the election, it's in the election. What's one piece of advice that you would give him at this point?
1: I think that Joe Biden has run a very, very smart campaign. I think that he understands – like, I think he has has put himself out there when he's needed to. I think he has met the task when he needed to, whether it was his speech at the DNC or whether it was during the debates and kind of holding his own, making sure to do no harm. He's basically let Trump hoist himself from his own petard. He understands it's a referendum on this failed incumbent. That being said, I have felt this whole time like Joe Biden – it comes through loud and clear in the focus groups you know he's not as defined as he could be or that you would even think that he is as a as a person who was the most recent vice president and who's been in the senate for a very long time and who is more or less a household name people still don't have like a great idea of what he stands for or who he is That's just shocking to me because he's been in public life for so long I know, but it, it's come through. I mean, there's a lot of data to support this. And I think that, you know, one of the women last night in the focus group, she said that she decided to finally vote for Biden because she watched the debate. And at the end, when they both made their closing arguments, where they were asked, like, how will you be the president of people who didn't vote for you? And, you know, Trump just talks a bunch of garbage. And Joe Biden gives this very, very... It's like it's his whole stump, you know, is about unity and about how he will be the president for everybody and about how he'll be bipartisan. But I sort of wish that in his closing days, um, I know they're reluctant to kind of step on Trump, who's just holding like super spreader, freeze you to death, you know, rallies. But I would go out and make like one closing argument speech that is like, here's who I'm going to be for everyone, because the thing about Joe Biden is that he may not be like inspiring to everybody, but he is sort of like the hug people need right now. And I feel like he's had a hard time getting his own airtime because Trump sucks up so much of the oxygen. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I could see him doing sort of one last thing to to sort of tip the scales and make everybody just feel comfortable with him without all the noise of Trump. Um, That being said, I don't think he needs to do much. I just, I mean, like, I I don't, I don't, the the strategy he's done has been executed flawlessly and it's working for him. Um, I think he should go to places like Georgia. I think he should keep going to places like Texas, uh, if for no other reason than to swagger and show that they're expanding the map as Trump's running out of money.
0: What happens to our country if Trump wins? (sighs) Nothing good.
1: Um, Look, I think it would be, I think that the country... Can survive four years of trump we can say oops we made a mistake this is not who we are uh but the institutions in many ways held um the biggest fail the biggest institutional failing was republicans themselves um but the courts you know mostly held um and uh you know even i look back on things like even jeff sessions who like is horrible uh even he you know recused himself during the Mueller investigation. like there was there was enough um, enough good things in our government to kind of keep keep things uh, held. But like now that he's got Bill Barr installed, like you can just see like everybody he he has he has run off every patriot who joined that administration to try to be the guardrails. They're all gone now. And so like we are already on the D team. And so, like, four more years, the way that that administration chews through people, you will be on the G, you know, XYZ teams, number one. Um, you can see in the pandemic just how much, uh, you know, for people like me, right, like, I want government to be limited to some degree, but I also want it to be competent and to do the things that it was designed to do, like coordinate a federal response to a pandemic like that's a great thing for government to be good at and you know not only did donald trump dismantle uh the pandemic team prior to all of this happening he then decided he was going to be a one-man disinformation machine who you know was like literally running against the doctors um and so i just i just look at extrapolate that out four more years from now when he's totally unconstrained i know because we've we've been the group that has sort of um helped Sherpa out all these former Trump officials like Miles Taylor and Olivia Troy and Elizabeth Newman, and they all talk about how horrible things are behind the scenes, how unfocused he is, how there are drawers of executive orders for crazy things. I mean, things like getting rid of birthright citizenship, pulling us out of NATO, like there's just a lot more damage he can do. And that's why it is... Uh, it's not just important. Is it like is, I always like get annoyed with people who are like, it's the most important election of our lifetime. Like, no, lots of them aren't. Lots of them are fine. It's a normal transition of power. This one is for real.
0: Okay. So uh, listeners, if you need something to relax, we'll do a special episode on meditation after this because uh, I don't want to know and I uh, what happens to our country if President Trump wins. And I – suspect that we agree on this. And, you know, I keep thinking about that um, famous Gates poem that the center will not hold. And I feel like the Republican Party just made a deal with the devil to use an over, overused phrase when they didn't act as a guardrail um, because of the institutional weaknesses that you talked about. And I really appreciate you walking through all of this with us, as listeners of Passing Judgment know, we've now learned a lot from you and we like to learn a little bit more about you. I always ask my guests the same three questions. So completely changing gears, here we go. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party? How famous do they have to be? Oh, interesting. I've never had that question before. Uh, It can be a limited public figure. That's fine. Famous for us, not famous nationwide. That's fine. Okay. I
1: mean, this is a really random answer, but it would be Edna St. Vincent Millay, who is my, like, deeply my favorite
0: poet. You're going to be stranded on a desert island, and you can bring one meal. What is it?
1: Uh,
0: Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Number three, you get one superpower for an hour. What is it?
1: I would probably choose invisibility, and I would probably just prank people.
0: (laughs) Sarah Longwell, thank you for passing judgment with us. You can find Sarah on Twitter at SarahLongwell25, the numbers two five at the end. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you so much to the listeners. And we are going to have some special election episodes coming up for you. And we will talk to you next time.